Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. Today I'm speaking with Scott Galloway. Scott is the New York Times bestselling author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, and a professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. He is a serial entrepreneur and has founded nine companies, including L2, Red Envelope, and Profit. In 2012, he was named one of the world's 50 best business school professors by Poets and Quants, and his weekly YouTube series, Winners and Losers, has generated tens of millions of views. He is the co-host of the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher, and that's where I normally hear him. I'm a big fan of that podcast. And his latest book is The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. And it's a really fun and wise little book. I highly recommend it. Also, Scott's about to launch a new podcast titled The Prof G Show. That's the letter G with Scott Galloway. And we get into many things here. We talk mainly about the connection between wealth and happiness. So we cover the problem of wealth inequality, the transfer of wealth from the young to the old, class warfare and democratic politics deficit spending, means testing, social security. And then we get into politics proper. We talk about the Bloomberg campaign and stop and frisk, the breaking up of big tech, privacy absolutism, whether you want anyone to ever get into your iPhone. And then we also cover topics like meditation and mortality, atheism, etc. If we sound a little behind the curve here politically and with respect to the news, That's because we are. We recorded this podcast a couple of weeks ago. I would say about 90% of what we say still stands with respect to the presidential campaign, but a few things have changed. Mayor Pete dropped out yesterday, for instance, and tomorrow is Super Tuesday. So depending on when you're listening to this, the candidacy of Michael Bloomberg may seem more or less plausible. Also, we don't mention coronavirus, which will seem a strange omission given that it's pretty much all anyone is talking about at the moment. I'm sure I'll do a full episode on it before too long. I'm definitely paying attention to it. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Scott's, as you'll hear, and it was great to talk to him. So now I bring you Scott Galloway. I am here with Scott Galloway. Scott, thanks for joining me. Sam, there are so few things that impress my colleagues about my professional achievements, and this is one of them. They practically closed the office when they heard that I was going to be on your <laughs> podcast. You're, you're, a, you're like a royalty around here. Well, uh, it's a dubious distinction with your co-host, Kara Swisher, on the, on the Pivot podcast. Not her. Not her. Let's be clear. <laughs> Kara, not that impressed. Right. Not as much. That's not hilarious. As much. Well, well, first, yeah. let me say I'm a huge fan of yours. I loved your book. Thanks for saying that. The Algebra of Happiness, which We'll certainly talk about much of it, and there's a great book of advice you give to all comers, and there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of candor in that book, and it's a very easy read, so I recommend people pick it up. And I'm also a huge fan of the podcast you do with Kara, the Pivot podcast, despite the fact that she treats me with, uh, it seems to me, a kind of a borderline unethical way. I mean, I, ha- I was on the other, her other podcast, Recode, and yeah, Recode. it was not exactly a meeting of the minds, but there's something so likable about her, even though she's, you know, her shtick is to be truly irascible. I find mm-hmm. her, I mean, there's a kind of a strange form of charisma coming off her where it, 
you know, our conversation stayed to my eye totally on the rails, even though it had every opportunity to go off. So I like her despite the fact that she beats me up. I think people sense that the way I describe her is she's an igloo, you know, kind of hard on the outside, chewy and soft on the inside. Right. I think sort of her, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, her maternal or I think she's a caring person and surrounds herself in this hard candy shell. And I think people sense that, or at least that's been my experience. I don't really know her well. I know her, I don't know her well, but yeah, she's kind of, you know, tough on the outside, but a, a softy on the inside. Anyways. Yeah. Gareth Swisher, everybody. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, I do recommend your podcast. You guys just go into tech kind of endlessly and continually find interesting stuff to touch there, which we'll hit a bit here because I, as I think you know, I'm, I share your concerns about what tech is doing to us. Yeah. at every level, personally, and the level of fragmenting our society. So let's, there's so many places we could start here. I, I think before we dive in, give me your potted bio here in terms of just how you view your place in the world. And, and I mean, you're, you're a professor at NYU Business School, so that's the, I'll give you a proper intro, obviously, at the top. But how do you view what you're doing now? Because you're not, certainly not a normal academic in the way you're showing up. Yeah, so I think of myself as a teacher, my identity or what I kind of lean on, if you will, or what I'm most proud of or hope is the business card I carry the rest of my life is a professor or teacher. I, I, you and I actually have something in common in our background. Do you know what that is? Um, you didn't do your research. Gr gr growing up in California? Yeah, we're Bruins. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I always, I'm a product of big government raised by a single mother who lived and died a secretary in the regents of the University of California and California taxpayers, their vision and generosity uh, are the reason I'm here speaking to you. I went to UCLA, mm. got in with unremarkable grades and, and even worse SAT and rewarded them with a 2.27 GPA. Graduated, lied about my grades, a couple of years at Morgan Stanley. UC smiled on me a second time, let me into Berkeley. I went to the Hot School of Business, started a business my second year, found a company called Profit, a brand strategy firm. Grew that to about 400 people, sold that, decided I didn't want to be in the services business. It was just a lot of planes, very you know, difficult lifestyle. And then in the late 90s, decided to hit reset on my life. Uh, got divorced, left the Bay Area, resigned from the boards of all the companies I was on, resigned from the company I'd started, Red Envelope, which had recently gone public, and moved to New York and decided, you know, blessed with a lot of opportunities and options, decided I wanted to teach. And in 2002, joined the faculty of NYU, and I've taught there for the last 18 years. And then to get in trouble, and such that I can afford to live in Manhattan and Florida with with uh, two kids, I you know, do a bunch of other stuff. I'm an entrepreneur, started an analytics company, and a bunch of other stuff. But mm -hmm. that's that's the headline. The headline news. Yeah, you're very edgy in the way you uh, sound off on various topics. You seem to be right up against the line of what I would imagine to be the comfort zone of being inside academia. Does business school give you a different physics of the university to work with? Have uh, people tried to cancel you as an academic, or are you uncancelable on some level? So I don't think I would survive. I don't think I would have survived at almost any university in any other department other than the business school at Stern because I got very fortunate. We've had a couple of deans who've sort of been my Kevlar. and. And also the trends have been in my favor, and that is as schools have become more expensive, kids have become more demanding as they should be, and they want people with practical domain expertise brought into the classroom. So if you will, the market's kind of come to me, but I've, I'm not only 
you're being generous. I, I, on a regular basis, say stupid things, and it creates headaches for the university. Sometimes they're right. So I like to think a lot of times I say right things that are provocative that other people are thinking. But sometimes I say stupid things. And what you find at universities right now, which were initially supposed to be places where we were supposed to be charged with provoking people. I mean, that was original. Mm. That was initially the mission. The reason they took a piece of land outside the city center was to give people a safe place to be provocative. But that's not the case at current at universities right now. And that is we are exceptionally tolerant and forgiving and understanding of people who don't look like us, but we're not especially tolerant of people who don't think like us. And even as someone who considers themselves a progressive, I find that on a regular basis, my colleagues and students are looking to score virtue points and enter into this cancel culture, which you've talked a lot about. But having said that, I've always had, whenever I've gotten in trouble, a dean, Peter Henry or Rugu Sundaram, step in and say, this is the point. We're here to create a dialogue. And you can't do that. Conflict and debate are part of progress. So I actually feel really blessed that I'm in an environment that mostly encourages this type of provocative thought. But there's no getting around it. I I know how my career ends. I say Mm -hmm. something stupid, Facebook, Twitter, grab it. A journalist who I pissed off, the hundreds of VCs whose portfolios I have insulted, circulated, and I've, I've got the wrong dean, and it's NASCAR, and I'm sweet savage, and I spin around in a ball of flames, right. and it's all over. Right. Well, you, you have at least uh, some cover from your uh, colleague there, Jonathan Haidt, who's been on the podcast, Ugh. who's a great voice on that. My front. role model. Yeah. But his provocative statements are more data-driven and, quite frankly, more thoughtful. But he, he is a perfect example of, I think, a good countermeasure to some of the the PC weirdness that's injected, yeah, that's been injected into universities. Yeah, he's really been great. There are so many places we could launch from here. I mean, I, I think there are sort of two lenses through which we come at these shared concerns. I mean, we have the the individual level, and we tend to think of questions like, "What does it mean to live a good life?" And then there's the societal level where we're faced with the project of creating institutions and laws and social norms that allow a maximum number of people to arrive at some kind of satisfying answer to that first question. Let's start with on the topic of wealth and happiness. How do you think about the connection between wealth and happiness? So there's pulse marketing or my personal experience with money, and then there's the research around it. And my, my personal experiences, and this sounds crass, but I, this is what I tell my kids or my students. At a very young age, I made the connection between money and options and happiness. And it came to me because my mother was very sick. And I remember coming home from grad school and feeling uh, emasculated and feeling like I wasn't able to take care of her to the extent I wanted to because I didn't have any money. And I decided that I was going to that's when I kind of got my act together. And I started, you know, I spent most of my undergraduate years at UCLA smoking pot and playing sports and watching Planet of the Apes trilogies. And I decided when my mom got sick that that was it. I, you know, sh- shit's getting real. I, I got to get money. And I, I've been very focused on economics. And this notion that I just found what I loved is not true. Mm. I, I, I moved to where the puck was. I've, I've, I've placed a lot of value on economic security. and. So it's been very important for me. The research shows that there is a correlation between money and happiness. That's the bad news. The good news is that, is that it tops out. And once you get to a point of affording housing, good schools for your kids, take a vacation, absorb an economic shock, 
which you know is a hundred grand in Ohio and eight hundred grand a year in in L.A. or or New York. Mm. Suppose you know happiness tops out. Now you don't get any less happier. The research shows that the cartoon of a billionaire being really unhappy is not real either. They're no less happier, but they're no happier than millionaires. But money has been a, an enormous driver for me, and I find that when wealthy people tell you to follow their passion, it's because they're already rich. Mm-hmm. And that in a capitalist society, more money means more opportunity for your children, better health care, and a greater selection set of mates, which are all wonderful things. So, yeah, I've been very focused on economics. I'm finally at a point where I can pursue stuff that doesn't impact that, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm enjoying economic security, but it's always been a I've been howling in the money storm for a long time. It depends on how you assess happiness. Actually, that seminal paper that many people drew this punchline from, that happiness tops out at, I I think the figure was $75,000 a year in that study. There's a famous paper by Danny Kahneman and Angus Deaton. So the moment-to-moment estimation of one's own well-being is the thing that tops out this in Danny's more recent language, this is the experiencing self versus the remembered self. But the remembered self is the self you're talking to when you ask someone how satisfied they are with their lives. And you're asking them to give a global and of necessity retrospective evaluation of just how good it is to be them. That global measure of life satisfaction doesn't really top out. It keeps going the richer you get. And that's something that, you know, people are kind of reluctant to remember that part of the study, but that's just, you know, that was the unhappy punchline there. It's not surprising that that would be so, especially if you're living in anything like an ethical way with your wealth. You're given opportunities to meet the people you want to meet and support the causes you want to support. And so there's philanthropy and there's the biggest thing I think is you know, the equation between money and time. I mean, the fact that you can hire people to do the things you don't want to do anymore, or you can hire people who are better at doing the things that you are not great at. It's not a surprise that that correlates with satisfaction in uh, many ways. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I'm, I was just sitting there thinking, you know, Bezos looks pretty happy, right? And, and one thing I admire about him, and there's a lot of things I don't admire about him, is that he's living out loud. He's buying, he's assembling a series of man caves, and he's mm-hmm. unashamed about it. And you know, yeah, he does. He's not trying to live below the radar and good for him. It's his money. Do what he wants, whatever, whatever makes him happy. You know, it's what, what I have found as you get older that it's important. I think it's important to realize there's a great analogy that money is the ink in your pen. You need a certain amount and it can write different chapters. It can make certain chapters burn brighter, but it's sort of not your story, mm-hmm. if you will. And and also the relationship between money and being rich. My father gets $58,000 a year from his Royal Navy pension, Social Security, and he spends about 50. So at the age of 89, he's still saving money, and he's very happy. And I have a lot of friends who are masters of the universe, investment bankers, making several million bucks a year. But between their ex-wife, their kids, alimony, house in the Hamptons, helicopters out to you know, Nantucket, they spend all of it and they have a lot of stress in their lives. So, uh, you know, the court depends what you mean by how much money you make, how much money you have, where you live. Mm. But yeah, I think about, I think about that stuff a lot and I still feel money stress and I have a lot more than I ever had in my life. And I always want more. It's kind of a 
you know, it's definitely a, a weirdness. And I find that wealthy people like to pretend that we don't think about money. And the reality is the wealthy people I know don't have to think about it from a stress level. But one of the reasons they're wealthier is they, they are absolutely conscious of it on a variety of dimensions. Mm. And that's one of the reasons they're wealthy. Yeah. So what, what do you think about that psychological process of moving the goalpost with respect to what one feels one needs in terms of wealth, right? I mean, this is, a, am sure, a very common phenomenon in the circles you run in, and most of us have experienced this personally. As you begin to succeed, the illusion that you are going to arrive at some place of real emotional serenity around the amount of money you have, it tends to be a mirage where you get there and then you have a set of other comparisons you make between yourself and others. Your tastes grow to fill the shape of the incoming resources. And, you know, I mean, it sounds like your father has escaped this dynamic, but how often do you see someone get to their number and really feel that they've arrived and they're basically done stressing about money on every level? I don't know anybody. I know a lot of people, including a couple, a couple billionaires, and I don't know anybody that doesn't stress. It's a different type of stress. The stress moves from economic to maintaining relevance, but the scorecard for their relevance is their ability to increase their wealth. I don't, I don't know anyone that's there that's truly self-actualized. Maybe, maybe that's a a testament or a lack thereof of the people I'm hanging out with. But the majority of the people I hang out with have money stress, but it's on a higher level. And what you have in capitalism that's in some ways so incredible is that capitalism keeps creating incentives. I remember the first time I, I backpacked around Europe and I went to Hungary and I exchanged $100 and I got this pile of money called, you know, forints, which were the currency was crashing. And I remember thinking, I'm rich. And I went into Hungary and you really, there was nothing to buy. There was no incentive to be rich. And in the U.S., look at what happens. You want to take your kids to Harry Potter. It's a hundred bucks. The new Harry Potter ride, that means you're waiting mm -hmm. in line for three hours. So for $135, you get a fast pass and it's only 20 minutes. And then you can go to the VIP tour, which is $3,500 for five people to have some very high EQ attractive person take you around and not only cut the line, but take you in the employee entrance. And then all you have to do is give the operator a hand signal so you can ride, do the ride several times. When I was growing up, it was coach and first class, mm. and they invented business class. Now there's a certain type of first class on Emirates where you get in a car and they take you to the plane so you don't have to associate or make eye contact with the other passengers. And then above that, there's private aviation now. I mean, it, the capitalist economy keeps segmenting offerings such that there's always more and more incentive if you give a certain amount of money to NYU Langone, and I'm sure UCLA has this, you get a phone number, and when anything comes up with you or in your family, and I, I don't have this, you call them, and there's a, just a different level of healthcare and attention that you get from the, from the medical professionals. So it's hard. A capitalist society is great at constantly creating and incentivizing grit and innovation and the want for more, but I don't, my appetite's not sated as yours. I mean, on one level it is. I mean, in terms of my perception of risk, there's definitely, a, as you say, the stress changes its character. But the truth is I came to it pretty late. I feel like I've, I've done many things backwards in my life. And I'm kind of a reluctant entrepreneur that 
I've just kind of stumbled into digital media and had to figure out how to make it work and have found that process fascinating. But yeah, it's, you know, happily it's working and I, you know, I have all the benefits of its working, but money is something that, that I spend a fair amount of time thinking about and it does cause stress, but it is a different kind of stress because it's working. It's not, it not working would be worse stress. But I, I worry a lot about the problem of wealth inequality now. And I've been worried about it for, you know, ever since the financial crisis in 2008. And I published a few essays on it, I think in 2009 and 2010. But it, it seems like it's now shaping up to be the big political problem of um, this election cycle and our time. It's a problem, obviously, for individuals, but it's a problem for culture, too, and for the segmentation of society and the, the insulation of wealthy people from everybody else, as you just described. Obviously, I, I want to talk to you about you know, your political intuitions here. I mean, how do you view wealth inequality as the long lever that everyone's going to pull here in the next nine months to determine what happens in our presidential election? I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is at least the Warren and Sanders wing of it is gearing up for um, something like class warfare. And, you know, if Bloomberg fails to become the nominee, it will be in large measure because the Democratic Party couldn't stomach having a billionaire appear to buy his way onto the platform. There's obviously a lot more here in terms of just what the economic stratification of our society is doing to culture. But how are you viewing the collective concern around wealth now? Yeah, well, I think you're onto something. And the fact that you started writing about it in 2009, 2010 means you're ahead of the curve. And look, it distinct to the moral, you know, the moral argument around this or the just ethical concerns around having some comity of man and or even remembering your past. Mm. People credit their character and their grit, you know, for their success. And then they they credit the markets for their failures. And, you know, I have no such delusions. Getting access to free education, coming of age in an era of processing power, explosion in the 90s and 90s San Francisco. Being a white heterosexual male born in 1964 meant that the majority of the rooms you walked into for the next 50 years, you were right. So a series of moons lined up to take some talent and some grit. I have both of those things. I'm not a modest person. And fling me into the, you know, into the stratosphere. And when I, when I would fail, give me another opportunity and opportunity after opportunity. So you, A, look back and think, okay, it just seems like a nod to future generations to try and ensure some of those dynamics are still alive. And when I got out of Berkeley, my total tuition at the Haas School of Business was $1,000 a year. And I got a job at a, where I decided to start my own business, but I had an offer at $100K a year. So mm. 100 to 1. Yeah. Now tuition at Berkeley is $68,000 and the average salary is 140. So it's two to one. The house, my first house in Potrero Hill was $285,000 relative to that. So 2.85 times my freshman or my first year starting salary. Now our average house is 1.4 million and they're making 100 foot. So it's gone from 2.8 to 10. And I, I think that everything we do in our society is largely a transfer of wealth, systematic organized transfer of wealth from the young to the old. I think the, the largest socialist program in the world, Social Security, a trillion dollars greater than the European and American defense budgets, reallocated from working age people to a cohort that is the wealthiest generation in the history of mankind. Mm. And people say, well, it's done its job. It's, it's pretty much solved 
poverty among seniors. You know, they say somewhere between 29 and 39 percent of seniors would be in poverty without Social Security. Now it's nine. And one, but, you know, one in three kids lives, live in food insecure households. That doesn't mean that we drop $300 worth of groceries off at every household per week with kids because we realize that's inefficient. And whether it's escalating costs of housing because of artificially suppressed interest rates, whether it's the greed or the loss of script among myself and my colleagues at universities thinking we're luxury goods, not public servants, and not expanding freshman class seats as quickly as population is expanding so we can brag about how hard it is to get into these schools and continue to raise prices. Everything, I I see almost everything is nothing but an elegant transfer of wealth from young people to baby boomers who have totally co-opted, in my opinion, government, Mm-hmm. And are transferring and sucking wealth from from future. I mean, government's going to take in three and a half trillion dollars in tax revenues. They're going to spend four and a half. You talk about money uh, in, in an eloquent way that money is really just the transfer of time and work from one entity to another. Mm-hmm. And it seems when we're racking up trillion dollar deficits, what we've decided is in order to cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy, such that we can borrow time with loved ones from our children and our grandchildren. I think it's a moral issue. That's the bad news. We have dramatic wealth inequality. The good news is it almost always self-corrects. But the further bad news is those mechanisms of self-correction are usually war, famine, or revolution. And I think we're in the midst of a soft revolution. It's weird how it's happening, but I think we're in the midst of a soft revolution around income inequality. It seems to me that the ethics here are really clear. I mean, you you, uh, mentioned in your own case that you don't have any illusions about how lucky you've been. And, you know, I feel that really clearly myself. And it's clear that it extends to everything. I mean, any talent a person can notice in themselves, and they imagine, you know, correctly that it's the proximate cause of their success. I mean, so, you know, intelligence, say, or grit, or a desire to succeed, right? Where is this coming from? No one invented themselves, right? And if you make the best use of your gifts, you didn't pick your gifts and You're not responsible for the fact that you were given the opportunities you were given, that you were born into a society that wasn't plunged into a civil war on your fourth birthday. And your ability to make use of the opportunities you're given, again, is coming from some set of causes that you didn't author. And so what we see everywhere is, I mean, this is not an argument for not making, you know, effort. It's not an argument against the necessity of effort and working hard. but a person's ability to work hard, again, is something that is the product of genes and environment. And even if you're going to smuggle in an immortal soul into the clockwork, no one picked their soul, right? If you believe in souls, you certainly don't believe that you created your own. So at no point do you see someone truly, deeply lay title to the claim that they were self-made. And and this this is a point that on some level, Obama made a while ago, I guess toward the end of his presidency and was derided for it on the right. I think he said, you know, you didn't build that. You're talking about infrastructure that, you know, every technocrat and billionaire has benefited from. But it seems to me that the only moral position to have recognizing the general shape of this thing, which is that there's a massive disparity between good and bad luck in this world, is that you should want to cancel the worst forms of that disparity and, and figure out how can we continually make the floor get higher and higher for the least lucky among us. 
So then agreeing with that, one wonders what the solutions are here. You know, the proffered solution from someone like Warren or Sanders now is a a wealth tax. You know, I mean, they give it the top spin of wealth in excess of you know, however many millions of dollars is not only egregiously unfair for anyone to have acquired, there was in fact no ethical way for them to acquire it in the first place. At least one of them, if not both of them, I saw recirculate a tweet saying, basically, there's just no way to become a billionaire without having been a fraud or uh, inheriting it. There's no noble way to acquire that much wealth, which is clearly untrue, right? I mean, you, you mentioned Harry Potter. It's like, does anyone think that J.K. Rowling really got her wealth by a starkly unethical means? She's being rewarded for the, the amount of joy people have taken in her creative output. So what do you see as a remedy here? I mean, wealth tax seems fairly unworkable from my point of view, but what should we do here when admitting that at a certain point inequality will become something that even the wealthiest among us won't be able to stomach? Yeah. Well, you said a lot there. I feel like we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so let's start. I think a lot of it, I think you came, you're more self-aware at a younger age than I was. I, I found that I was constantly reminding people, as I did at the outset of your show, that I was born and raised by a single immigrant mother. And that's my way of trying to impress people by saying that my success was 100% due to me and I deserve everything I have. And I, I think uh, the, where we start is with our kids and that is to ensure that, and I find that this kind of third base mentality is so rampant in the Bay Area where I came from where a VC thinks he's a genius in changing the world because he invested in the C round of Pinterest and not Friendster, that this, right. someone just got incredibly lucky and his or her parents managed to get them into Stanford. And what do you know, his or her parents are very wealthy and went to Stanford. And the thing that kind of, the, the, the thing that really brought it home for me was not, born in 1964, white heterosexual male was like, and, and born in Southern California was winning the lottery. You came into a great university system that was free. You came into a professional environment in the 90s in San Francisco where more wealth was created in a seven-mile radius of SFO International from 92 to 99 than had been created in Europe since World War II. You, 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 had, you had discrimination. You made up 22% of the American populace, but 97% of all venture funding went to that profile. Yeah, you know, in the 90s, I raised a ton of money for my startups, and I didn't know a single woman who raised more than a million dollars. And what's embarrassing is it seemed normal. Mm. It, you didn't question it. You didn't say, well, something's, something's all fucked up here. You just, you didn't, it seemed normal that, oh, they'd made their own choices, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it, maybe it wasn't a feature, but it wasn't a bug. And the thing that really, I'd heard about my freshman roommate from the fraternity at UCLA was born a white male in 1964 in California, but his DNA, my DNA was heterosexual, his DNA was homosexual, and he ended up dying, you know, alone of AIDS. Hmm. And so to not, you know, to not recognize just how much of your success is not your fault. Yeah. I've come to that later in life. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so let's get out of that. Solutions. So. I find we're having a knee-jerk gag reflex when, when Senator Sanders accuses Pete Buttigieg of taking money from 42 billionaires as if, as if that's a bad thing. I see that as a feature. The cartoon of billionaires being mean people or bad people, I generally find 
and I know a lot of billionaires, that they're good, decent people, that in general, to be very successful in business, it helps to be ethical. It helps to be a good person. Yeah. It helps to invest in relationships. People want those people to win. And the notion that it's bad, you know, I, I buy into the notion that billionaires inherently are no better than the rest of us, but I, I'm almost positive they're no worse. So this notion that they've done something wrong. And meanwhile, these senators have had a lot of opportunity to try and pass laws that create a more equitable tax structure, and they have failed to do so. So what frustrates me about the current environment in the Democratic presidential race is we seem to be bringing purity tests to a, to a gunfight. Mm. I mean, wh what is the point of that? I believe this comedian, Larry Wilford, summarized it perfectly, and he said, why don't we just give all Democrats a hall pass on racism for the next nine months and kick the racist out of office? Mm. Yeah. And it, the notion that, but uh, for example, a wealth tax, they, they've tried that in France, and then the wealthiest man in Europe moved to, moved to Belgium. So maybe it's a good idea. Maybe, maybe it's a bad idea. But first, maybe we just start with figuring out a way that Amazon, that Walmart pays $70 billion in corporate income taxes, and Amazon pays two over the last 10 years. Meanwhile, Amazon is out of the value of Walmart in a three-month period. Maybe we just start with kind of more equitable corporate income taxes. Maybe we start with, okay, if the wealthiest man in the world effectively doesn't pay taxes because he can borrow wealth borrow money against his stock holdings, paying 1.8% on margin to JP Morgan, thereby never really triggering a capital gains event. You know, maybe we start there. Maybe we start with this really fucked up notion that money is more noble than sweat. Why on earth have we decided that the income that muscle and sweat, current income, should be taxed at a higher rate than the money that money makes, capital gains? Why wouldn't we go back to where Reagan was and just have one tax rate on money that you make. Mm. And if you don't, if you're worth over a certain amount of money and, and accreting it, there's an alternative minimum tax. If you're a corporation, you can't do these crazy inversions or tax avoidance. It feels, it seems to me that Washington has been overrun and corporations' tax lawyers are smarter than our, our, uh, you know, our IRS. I, but the notion that we're going to demonize billionaires, the notion that we have to have 70 and 80% taxes. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of sunlight in between those two places. And I worry that the Democrats, out of you know, this, this kind of purity or notion of what is the right thing to do, are showing up with lanterns and pitchforks. You know, that doesn't work. They, they can't Robin Hood billion. Billionaires are the most mobile people in the world. If they want to start a wealth tax, it sounds crazy. Like 2% doesn't sound like a lot. If you tax someone 2% a year, that probably means every 15 to 20 years, you're cutting their wealth in half. Right, right. And one of the reasons these people are wealthy is they think long-term. They're going to move. They're going to leave. And a lot of countries want them. So I find, and I don't know if I'm, it sounds like you've been following the, politi the political content. It's no accident that the people, the candidates who are getting the most grief and the, getting the greatest level of accusation and grief about racism are ones with executive level backgrounds, the mayor of of South Bend, Mayor Pete, and the mayor of New York, Mayor Bloomberg, because they actually had to make decisions on the ground that involved crime and firing people and real-time decisions. They weren't just voting and pontificating. They had to make difficult decisions. Mm. And there's no way to run a city for eight years, much less 12 years, and not make, not make decisions that are going to age poorly. And the notion that we're in this, this 
this cancel culture where we're calling each other racist on the on the Democratic side, that's just fucking stupid. I mean, we're yeah. going to disarm unilaterally against Republicans right now by 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 convincing America that we're racist. Anyways, yeah, yeah, I, I want to go into that swamp with you uh, full on in a second, but um, this issue with just how to mitigate the problem of inequality seems to me to be genuinely difficult. The solutions proffered, I mean, something like a wealth tax seems like it, first of all, it creates all of this, this overhead in terms of the work that has to be done to enforce compliance with it and just to, you know, estimate people's wealth and get them to pay these taxes. It would be all these edge cases where, you know, you'll have people who are wealthy by normal standards because they live in, you know, an expensive house that they've been in for 20 years. But, you know, if you're trying to claw back their wealth, at a certain point, you're going to have some 80-year-old person who used to be wealthy forced to sell her house because she doesn't have the liquid assets to pay the wealth tax. You know, And no one who's urging us to have a wealth tax in the first place is going to shed a tear over this, but it's just a crazy mechanism to claw it back when you could have something like a, a value-added tax or just, as you say, just follow you know, Warren Buffett's admonition and tax him more than his assistant is taxed. What do you think about UBI as a solution here to create some tide that is raising all boats? You know, I, I think it's a compelling idea. It's, it's kind of an interesting idea from leveling up, sort of say, okay, everyone's going to level up. But I don't, I, at the end of the I think we should be, I think there are simpler, more effective, less expensive solutions. Senator Michael Bennett, Bennett proposed expanding the earned, the, the child's earned income tax credit that most studies show would take 40 to 60% of kids out of poverty and be 40 billion instead of a trillion or be dramatically less expensive. Mm. I think just truing up and making tax complexity favors the wealthy because we have accountants. I'm, you know, I paid, I live in Florida. I paid 22.8% or 23.8 on long-term capital gains. If you start companies, which is how I have generated the majority of my wealth, the first $10 million is tax-free if you hold on to the stock for longer. It's 1202 passed by Obama. There's no reason for that. Mm. And they say, well, we want to incentivize our innovators. I couldn't have told you what tax rates were starting a business. People start businesses because they don't have any options. They're, yeah. Or generally speaking, we romanticize it. The reality is I don't have the skill set to be successful in the greatest wealth creation engine in the history of mankind, and that's the U.S. corporation. They're incredible platforms, but I don't, I'm not emotionally secure enough to work in a large corporation where other people have power over me. I could just never handle that. I didn't have the self-awareness, so I started companies. And because we romanticize entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs, when they sell their companies, pay an effective tax rate usually of 17 or 18%. Whereas people who are just working hard for companies in lower level positions and, and trying to put their kids through school pay 30 to 40. And in New York, you know, I mean, we like to demonize all wealthy people. If you're making half a million dollars a year, as a lawyer, partner in a law firm in Manhattan, and you got two kids, you're probably paying an effective tax rate of 48 to 52%. Mm. But if you own the law firm, and or if you figured out a way to turn your gains to sell shares in the law firm, you pay 22.8, and then maybe with the money, you at some point move to Texas or Florida and avoid state and city taxes, and, and just you make the jump to light speed. So taxes are progressive until you hit a point where you can get the majority of your income from capital gains, and then you make the jump to light speed, and your tax rate plummets. And we just have to decide, do we want a progressive tax rate or not? The idea of coming in and violating a core tenant 
of Western European and American economic and sociological and political philosophy of private property, that's a very powerful draw. And even if it means some inequity or, but I think look backs where we show up and start Robin Hooding and saying, all right, you paid taxes on that wealth at some point, it's yours, but we're going to show up and start taking it away from you in the form of a wealth tax. Mm. To me, that sort of violates this basic norm of private property. That, and now even Illinois is saying there's a huge fiscal crisis coming with these states that, quite frankly, aren't worth the taxes. What, Sam, where do you live? California. Okay, so California, particularly like another 11, another 11 or 12 percent a year. Is that, is that about what it costs on current income out there to live in California? It'll be a sign of my white privilege that I can't even give you an answer to that question. So I think it's somewhere between 11 and 13 percent. Right. California's worth it. I mean, you wake up in February and it's 65, in and out burger, the, you know, the, the highway, the Pacific Coast Highway, the opportunity to work at Snap or, or Warner Brothers or Facebook, California's worth it. Manhattan is worth the 13%. The, the density of creativity, culture opportunity here is worth the additional 13%. Yep. Is it worth it in Evanston, Illinois? Is it worth it in Summit, New Jersey? So you're having these fiscal crises in Illinois and in Jersey and Connecticut where people said, I'm not going to pay the taxes of California and New York and not get the sunshine and the opportunity. And so there's this migration, which is essentially driven by two things, right? Low taxes and sunshine. So we're facing what will be a really interesting kind of fiscal crisis. But Illinois is now talking about an exit tax, hmm. which again is, is reaching into people's private property. So I think there's a lot of solutions before we have what I'd call this gag reflex overcorrection, where we start demonizing wealthy people. And I, I worry that the majority of people in the U.S. are capitalists who believe in fair tax policy, who believe in a progressive tax policy, but don't inherently want to demonize wealthy people. They want to be them. Yeah. They, they, they aspire to be them. And I think that is where the Democratic Party right now is kind of coming off the tracks a little bit. Yeah, that, well, that's a... An interesting point politically. I mean, whatever the ethics is here, and I agree with you on the ethics, it just seems like bad politics because so many people who will never be, not only will they not be billionaires or even meet billionaires, they aspire to be billionaires or at least aspire to achieve wealth such that they feel psychologically implicated in this kind of overreach. I forget what the statistic is something like, you know, 0.2% of society ever has to pay an estate tax, but a majority of people are against the estate tax, or at least, you know, under some description, they're against it. And so this aspirational relationship to wealth makes it politically unwise for Democrats to be striking a, a note of class warfare here. What it comes right down to, I believe in America, that when, and one of the fundamental tenets of capitalism is you can't have winners Without You can't reward the winners without punishing the losers. Mm. And that sounds harsh, but I do believe in America, we are comfortable with winners and losers. We're just not comfortable with the Hunger Games, yeah. where a small group of people <laughs> go on to live an amazing life and everyone else dies a gruesome death. We're, we're comfortable with billionaires. We're not comfortable barreling towards a society with 350 million serfs serving 3 million lords. You know, yeah. We want economic opportunity. We want luck. We want you know, incentives, dramatic incentives for people to get wealthy, but we don't want a level of income inequality where if the middle class goes away, you can't have, you're just going to stop producing billionaires in the same frequency we produce them or millionaires if you don't have a thriving middle class, right? We've, going back to our tax policy, four and a half trillion dollars 
in tax expense, government expenditures, taking in three and a half trillion in revenues, so a trillion dollar deficit. You know, deficit spending and debt spending can be a powerful part of growth. You know, what are you investing in is the question you ask your CEO if you're if if they're losing money. Are we investing in technology? No. Are we investing in our young people in subsidized education or trade schools such that we have better human capital that makes our nation more competitive? No. Are we investing in infrastructure that would make a quality of life or opportunity to spend more time with our kids or more efficiency? No. We've decided that our investment in the future is to invest in wealthy people and and profitable organizations in the form of reduction in corporate income tax from 35 to 21 and reduction in income taxes that have largely accrued to the wealthy. So there's some, there is some trickle down, but the reality is middle-class people spend most or all of their money. And so there's a greater multiplier effect. So just surely from, it seems like economic growth, we'd want to reinvest in middle-class. And from a corporation standpoint, having served on boards, we got this tax cut and what did we do with the money? We bought back shares which took the share price up. Who owns 80% of the shares in the United States, the top 10% income earnings house, household? So again, it's just this, this uh, you know, exponential upward spiral of the people who have made the jump to light speed. Mm. And, and people know that the lottery is a bad business, is a, a, that they may not win, but their ticket's the winner. And it's, we, we're, we are really moving towards this Hunger Games economy. And I just think there's a huge amount of daylight between what uh, Senators Warren and Sanders are proposing, and where we are. There's, there's, there's got to be room here for nuance and calibration. Mm. What about means testing Social Security? You spoke about Social Security as being this, this wealth transfer. I mean, we want the transfer in the sense that it's taking the tragedy out of living too long and dying abjectly poor. I mean, that was the genius of Social Security. But if it's just going to people who don't, in fact, need it, this is just going to be viewed as a, an unethical clawback of wealth that they assumed was their own? I think you and I are probably in violent agreement here. I think they call it Social Security tax, not the Social Security pension fund, because it's a tax. Mm. And people say, well, it's unfair. I've been paying into it. People on Social Security are taking out somewhere between 3 and 6x what they actually put in. Right. And for the majority of people receiving Social Security, it's not to save them from poverty. It's, a, it's the most expensive trillion-dollar upgrade from Carnival to Princess Cruises. <laughs> it makes their life nicer, nicer, but it's not keeping them out of poverty. Mm. I believe we should have greater assistance through Social Security or another program for, the, for, for seniors who are in poverty. A, a decent judge of a society is to look at our seniors who are in poverty and say, what are we doing to make, give them a more dignified life? I think that is a decent metric for a society. Where we have gone is we use that noble cause as a means of transferring more. The greatest transfer in the history of mankind goes to the wealthiest cohort in the history of mankind. That policy has not kept up with demographics. Everyone's living into their 80s, 90s. The fastest growing demographic group in America are centenarians. We're all going to know someone over the age of 100. So the notion that we're not massively, people are working longer, increasing the age, means testing. It is ridiculous my father's getting Social Security. You and I, Sam, should not be eligible for Social Security. Mm -hmm. It is a tax. We should bring people out of poverty. But the reason why we have so many young people embracing socialism is it's sort of a, it really is, it's a battle of nomenclature. You and I are the beneficiaries of socialism. We got free education. I don't know when, when you went to UCLA, but the notion of canceling one and a half trillion dollars of student debt, which seems ridiculous, is basically young people just saying, you know, Scott and Sam, I want the same deal on education you had. Mm. 
I, I don't have student debt because tuition for me, undergrad at UCLA and graduate school at Berkeley was a total, my total tuition, undergrad and grad in five years at undergrad, see above, smoking dope, watching Planet of the Apes trilogy, my total tuition was $7,000. Mm. And then they see this transfer of wealth to seniors. So we've had a socialist economy for a long time. It's just young people want to call it that. We called it something else. We called it the University of California. We call it social security. But if we don't, you know, it has gotten so, in my opinion, so systematic. I mean, even if it's white coaches or, 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 or universities or the head of the NC2A making four and a half million dollars a year such that amazing young athletes don't make any money and calling it the purity of the game, that again is a transfer of wealth from young people to old people. Look at millennial home ownership. Look at artificially depressing interest rates to main, ensure that asset prices are inflated. You know who needs a correction in stock markets and the, and the property market? Young people. The reason I'm financially secure is I got to buy Amazon at 60 bucks a share. The reason I'm financially secure is after 2008, I looked at Apple and I said, okay, Apple, at 40 bucks a share, you're a good buy. I'm going in. Mm. We have this notion, this kind of predetermined gestalt that keeping asset prices high is our number one priority. No, it's not. Young people need an opportunity to get into assets at a relatively decent price. And markets should fall and rise to kind of the natural levels. We shouldn't be issuing a trillion dollars in debt, again, pulling forward prosperity to artificially inflate the assets that are predominantly owned by, guess what, old people. Hmm. Yeah, okay, so let's Tell a lot look at there. the, you know, no, it's good. It's, it's, let's look at the political implications of this because politics is on everyone's mind. And you know, I'm trying to pick my moments between here and, November, because it just cannot subsume all or even most of my bandwidth. It just gets too boring. But, you know, with you, I think it's very interesting to consider what this landscape looks like. Let's start with Bloomberg, because he's someone who is getting, you know, there's at least an attempt to defenestrate him based on a few things he said as mayor, which may have been politically, uh, you know, imprudent or, you know, too candid by half. But in many respects, not obviously wrong. And the arguments against him really seem to be pseudo-arguments. And so I'll just, at the time we're recording this, this is a fairly vivid scandal or pseudo-scandal in journalism now. But the Democrats are pillorying him over remarks he made that were just unearthed from the, the Aspen Institute in 2015 when he was talking about stop and frisk. And I have the quote here. So this is Bloomberg in 2015, after he was mayor, he was, I believe, mayor for 11 years of New York City, and that the policy, for those who don't recall it, it's been since more or less phased out, but the cops were stationed more in minority areas and stopping and frisking people looking for guns, mostly. And, you know, crime rates plummeted. There's some uncertainty about the causal factor there, but it was not irrational at the time to think that stop and frisk was part of the policy that was succeeding and causing uh, crime rates to plummet. Anyway, so Bloomberg said, 95% of your murders and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description and Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities 15 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city in America. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people who are getting killed. So you want to spend the money on a lot of cops in the streets. Put those cops where the crime is, which means 
minority neighborhoods. And then in a subsequent interview, he said, one newspaper and one news service, they just keep saying, oh, it's a disproportionate percentage of a particular ethnic group. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those who witnesses and victims describe as committing the crime. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. It's exactly the reverse of what they're saying. I don't know where they went to school, but they certainly didn't take a math course or a logic course. All right, so he's clearly making it difficult for himself there, you know, in hindsight politically. But the reality is all the data I've ever read about violent crime support what he's saying here, that the disproportionate number of perpetrators and the disproportionate number of victims are coming from minority communities. And what these communities suffer from, it's not too much policing. It's been the wrong type of policing. It's, there's too much policing around petty crime and not enough policing around you know, solving murders. And how to get that right is a difficult question. But the people who are saying that the only way to have arrived at a stop and frisk policy was born of racism and a, a not caring about the disparities of the way in which crime victimizes communities, that's just clearly untrue. A, a completely rational and compassionate attempt to mitigate violent crime could have given you this policy. And it, it seems to me that the thing the Democratic Party has to be able to admit at this point in order to talk anything like sense on this topic is that it's a difficult social problem, that you know, the mayor was right in his diagnosis, that you could win money all day long in a casino that would allow you to place a bet on the age range and gender and minority identity of a perpetrator of a violent crime in New York City. You know, it's not the ultra-Orthodox Jews who are mugging people in New York City, but that's a politically toxic thing to make salient. And the remedy of stop and frisk became politically toxic and probably wasn't worth doing in hindsight. And he could have figured that out earlier than he did, perhaps. But the fact that he's being castigated on the left as a racist monster just seems to be, you know, emblematic of all of the the miscalibrations in our politics on the left that the wokeness is ensuring. And it seems, above all, a recipe for giving us four more years of Trump in the end. Yeah, 100%. You, I thought you spoke eloquently about, uh, and you, were, you showed, some. I thought, some real backbone. And I, I don't think I had, would have had the courage to say this without you saying it first. When I go through TSA, I want them profiling people. Yeah. And if there's some recent young man from Pakistan coming through TSA, I want a different set of security standards for him other than some 85-year-old Latina grandmother. I want a different set of standards. And that's profiling. And I understand the, I understand the indignance around it. I understand the, the dangers around it. But I, uh, you know, I, I think the situation warrants it. And I was in New York during Stop and Frisk. And I remember a lot of some national outrage about it. But there was, I think, a feeling. And first off, as a, as a white guy who lives in Soho, who's never been thrown up against a wall and violated like that, I can't fully empathize with what that does to young men who are innocently, and there were a lot of people who were stopped and frisked who just shouldn't have been over and over, and it creates sort of this victim slash criminal mentality. I get it. It hasn't aged well. It was probably the wrong thing. But I remember back in the time reading about it in the New York Times and them saying that the communities that had the greatest damage levied upon them from crime were these communities. And this was an attempt to, to reduce the crime that was holding these communities back. And the reason why Mayor Bloomberg is picking up endorsements 
from black leaders around the nation. The reason why Mayor Bloomberg has gone up 1% in every national poll every 72 hours since he got in the race versus, and everyone says, oh, he's a billionaire. Tom Steyer's never busted through mm. 1%. And you go, oh, you know, it, the guy I was supported, Michael Bennett, I love Michael Bennett. He was my yeah. man. School superintendent, understands the economy, worked for a private equity firm, a senator that was seen as somebody who could work across the aisle, went out of his way to never personally attack anybody. I just thought he's our man. Got no traction. That's the reality. And where I am, and the reason I've, I'm now supporting Mayor Bloomberg, is that I think we as a Democratic Party have one moral imperative, and that's to get a, a bigoted, dangerous, and stupid man out of office. That's it. Those are my top three priorities. Mm -hmm. And the way we're going to get there is with someone with relevant experience, someone who has an on-the-ground you know, understanding of politics and how to win elections, and somebody who is worth $60 billion that can bring shock and awe to this campaign because the DNC has $8 million. The Republican Committee is going to raise you know Donald Trump is going gonna, is gonna to put a price on ambassadorships. Hey, I've got the DOJ in my back pocket. Would you like them in your back pocket for the next four years? That's $25 million. You want to be ambassador to Spain? That's $10 million. Ambassador to the Bahamas? That's $3 million. He's going to raise a billion dollars overnight. There's this illusion that Democrats understand online better than, than Republicans. That is a myth. They understand it better than us already working on it. If we don't bring in somebody with massive resources, and quite frankly, the, a lot of the stuff about stop and frisk, I think it helps them with the core constituents we, we need, and that is moderates. You have to turn out two cohorts to win this election. You have to turn out your base, which Hillary wasn't able to do. Mm -hmm. I think Donald Trump is going to turn out our base for us. I think people are genuinely scared that this individual has absolutely no empathy for them and is willing, and is willing to ignore their needs and run roughshod over their rights. And I think he, he is turning them out. So the, the, the race, I believe, is going to be won or lost for Democrats. And by the way, the good money's on Trump right now because the number of times we've kicked a president out mid-cycle without a recession is zero. Mm -hmm. So the good money's on him being reelected. The only shot we have is to win over almost every independent. Independents are moderates. Moderates, their top priorities aren't the black community. Moderates aren't trying to, trying to figure out who is the most swole, woke candidate. So I, I think you're going to see a massive pivot to the center as Democrats realize, okay, this is about getting a guy in office. And all the people complaining about billionaires buying elections, well, what the hell were you doing in Senate? How come you were unable to pass any sort of campaign finance reform? This is the world we live in. We're going to need someone who's willing to come up, do a trace comma investment personally to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with what you, you just know that Trump's going to raise a ton mm. of money. So anyways, I'm all in on Bloomberg. Would I like, if, 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 we were, if, we were, if we were at a different point in our society, might I be with someone else? I think Bernie's an inspiration. He loses 38 states. It's socialism versus capitalism. Capitalism beats socialism in this economy seven days and on Sunday. In my home state of Florida, they will position Bernie Sanders. They'll just show videos of him standing next to socialist -ass fa fascists in Southern America. He's done in Florida. Mm -hmm. He loses a swing state. No problem. Elizabeth Warren is, I think, got incredible character, strength, intellectual firepower. She's, she's declining. I think Amy Klobuchar is an inspiration. I like her as a moderate. I think Mayor Pete 
is fantastic. All of them are out of money. They're all literally going to be out of breath mm. coming into Super Tuesday. And I was down in New Orleans last week and I decided, you know, this is how old I'm getting. I decided to take a self-guided tour of the of the Garden District and go see the World War II mm. Museum. And there was a Bloomberg office there. And I walked in and it was thriving. And there were people in meetings showing PowerPoint. They are on the ground moving. So at, at this point, if Mitt Romney ran for the Democratic election and was going to have billions of dollars, I would, I would vote for him. Mm. And I'm not a fan of Senator Romney. We have one imperative, and that's find the guy that will get Trump out of office. And for me, that's Mayor Bloomberg. So these purity tests are just they're just ridiculous. We're trying to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, missing an op, you know, never missing an opportunity, miss an opportunity. Enough already. Black people, I believe, in New York, after spending 12 years with Michael Bloomberg, would say that if rather than focusing on a specific frame of the movie that is Michael Bloomberg, the movie plays well. Mm. He is an empathetic, decent man. The black community will do better. The black community, communities of color, women will do better under a Michael Bloomberg administration. He is a decent man who gets it wrong, but is willing to admit his mistakes and is an empathetic guy with an extraordinary, extraordinary nose for success and how to get mm. things done. I mean, can you imagine managing all the constituencies in New York? He managed to thread the needle between police unions, housing advocates, billionaires, JP Morgan, right? Google wanting to open their campus here. And those 12 years were seen as incredibly incredibly robust years that included a crisis that we survived. So anyways, I, as you can tell, you know, I like Mike, mm -hmm. I'm in. And I think this, this, I'm hoping that this bullshit purity test, we've decided to, you know, stick a gun in our own mouth and then shoot our feet. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping we put the gun away and start aiming it across the aisle. Yeah. But snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Have you heard this rumor? I think it's now 48 hours old that Bloomberg is or was considering Hillary. picking Hillary as his, as his running mate. That's a head scratcher. I mean, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that would, that would be the stupidest political decision of our lifetime, I think. But I can't see him doing that. I just can't yeah. see him doing that. I'm just so kind of freaked out about this. I want the, I want the clearest blue line yeah. path yeah. to the White House. I'm with and, you there. And everyone was, you know, there was some, there was some nonsense, some people, exit polls, People saying, oh, I didn't know Mayor Pete was gay. Give me my vote. And the reality is, if you look at the data, America is less homophobic than it's ever been. We've made huge progress around that. Where we haven't made progress or as much progress is people still have a problem with imagining a woman as president. And we're also quite ageist. We, you know, we're being over the age of 75 is an issue. So people have an easier time imagining a gay president than they do imagining a female or a president or an individual going into their mm. next decade. Okay, so an adjacent concern here is what is tech doing to all of us and what's tech? I've heard a lot of your endlessly entertaining whinging on this topic, and I, and I have you know, my own version of this, and I've spoken to people like Tristan Harris and the concern about the big four, but I would probably put, I think as you do, Google and Facebook out there as you know, a greater concern than than Apple and Amazon, at least in terms of what's happening to our, um, our information ecosphere. There are calls to break up big tech, obviously. And well, let, let's draw a narrow focus here. Let's, let's talk about Facebook for a second, because I, I actually have a, sure. a personal ethical dilemma here. So I have a, yeah. a meditation app, which I'm very happy with, and people seem to be getting a lot of benefit from it. And I'm, I'm now tasked with how to push that out into the world. And um, beyond just flogging the captive audience 
on this podcast, really the only way to push it out into the world, you know, to people who have not yet heard of it, is to advertise. And I'm told that the only reliable way to advertise these days is to buy ads on Facebook and Instagram. In terms of their targeting, you know, you're basically just burning up money in a, in a bonfire if you're advertising some other way. But I share your concerns about the ethics of this company and about the cavalier attitude they apparently have in witnessing the ruination of our democracy based on their, their use of attention-driven economics. So if you had a product that, you know, I'm not spreading divisive political opinions, I'm trying to put something out there that, that I think is really valuable for people, but I have genuine misgivings cutting a check to Facebook. What do you think? What should I do? So I believe that Facebook's underlining business model is fueled by rage. And I also think it's sitting on top of that unbelievable rage machine that creates rage and dissent among a population greater than the Southern Hemisphere plus India is controlled by a single voter shareholder class owned by one individual who got his start building a website evaluating women on their physical appearance, screwed over his friends in college, totally fucked over his best friend out of school, demonstrates all the characteristics of a sociopath and is the most dangerous person on the planet and can't be removed from office potentially for another 60 or 70 years, who's brought in an individual to go on a charm tour and has paid her $2 billion to wrap herself in a pink blanket that delay and obfuscates the necessary regulation and scrutiny we've provided to other organizations such that this platform can be weaponized by advertisers paying in rubles that suppress the turnout in key swing districts, electing an illegitimate president that puts people on the Supreme Court that every day are chipping away at a woman's rights for do, you know, sovereign domain over her own person and body. I think Facebook is the most dangerous organization in the world. If I were you, I would 100% advertise on Facebook. <laughs> and the reason why is my guess is you're not, you're not a believer in coal, but you turn on your lights. Yeah. And this is the issue. If Facebook is now a monopoly. If you have a small business, you have no choice but to be on Facebook or Google who control two-thirds of digital marketing. You're not going to use digital marketing to build a business. Why don't you just say, that's it. No electricity for us. Right. The world is heating. The majority of our, too much of our electricity is coming from coal-fired plants. That's it. No electricity at this business. You have to be on Facebook, Sam. I own their stocks. Hmm. I actually just sold Facebook, but I own their stocks because if you look, look at returns the last 10 years, somewhere between 22 and 33%, I think, of the S&P's gains have been around six stocks. It's the four, and then you had in Netflix and Microsoft. And to ignore and to not invest in those companies because of, of you know, moral issues, and I respect people who decide to do that, is to say, I'm not going to participate in the upside in our economy. And I've always said, if it's a choice between moral clarity and my Range Rover, I'm picking my <laughs> Range Rover. And I'm not, I'm not proud of that. But I think the majority of people think that way. People will make incremental rationalizations to make decisions that create economic security for them and their families, even if it results in small incremental damage over the medium and the long term to the Commonwealth. And the reason we pay 23 cents on the dollar to the U.S. government is we want them to think long term for us. The people at Philip Morris weren't bad people, but they continued to kill 500,000 people a year. The people at General Motors and Ford in the 50s and 60s that were pouring mercury into the rivers weren't bad people, 
But we have an FDA, we have an EPA, we have laws for a reason that they recognize these externalities and they step in. And for some reason with big tech or not for some reason, they don't apply the same scrutiny and level of scrutiny that every other organization has applied. If we found out that your podcast could be reverse engineered to an increase in self-harm among young girls, we'd shut Mm -hmm. this shit down right away. You'd be out of business, but not Facebook. And it all goes back to Steve Jobs. In a society where there's a, as society become wealthier and more educated, there's the reliance on a super being and church attendance goes down. But that need for spiritual clarity and guides and mentors only increases. In step the innovators that command this godlike magic called technology that put a man on the moon, that arrested the AIDS virus, that turned back Hitler. And these very charismatic people armed with their 900-person PR teams and their lobbyists overrunning Washington, where the DOJ has been emasculated, the FTC is now flaccid, where journalists have been cut in half, but the number of PR executives has gone up threefold, creating a six-to-one ratio of bullshit spin to actual supervision or regulation has resulted in private power co-opting the government as opposed to the government being a countervailing force. And the reality is we have a series of small number of companies that are aggregating all the spoils while no one else can compete. Mm. The category is growing fastest in our economy. Tech hardware, search, social media, e-commerce get the least seed funding because no one wants to compete with a monopoly. And so I don't think you break these guys up because they're necessarily evil. I have a lot of friends at these companies. Amazon is the largest recruit out of my class. I'm economically secure because I invested Mm -hmm. in these companies. But the one thing the government always gets right is antitrust, or typically. There was huge arguments around not bringing AT&T up. They're the only ones with the capital to make the requisite investments in hardline phones and sell. Bullshit. We broke them up. All of the seven or the nine baby bells 10 years later were all worth more than the original AT&T. We absolutely need to go in there and oxygenate the economy, get more venture capital, more business startup, more taxation, more employment. The only person that typically loses, the only stakeholder that loses in a breakup is typically the CEO who wants to be sit on the iron throne of Westeros just versus one of the mm-hmm. seven realms. So it is time to oxygenate the economy. I think regulation is important. I think Tim Wu is a gangster here. Tristan has done amazing work showing how they have leveraged addiction to move further down our brainstem to get us, I mean, absolutely wed to these things. I'm addicted Mm -hmm. to Twitter and it enrages me and depresses me and I'm 100% addicted to it, but I can modulate it. When my son comes home and asks me to post his handstand on YouTube and then we go to the beach and we're boogie boarding and I see him say, can we go home? And I'm like, why do you want to go home? We're having such a great time. He goes, I want to see how many likes I got on YouTube. You know, I know something mm. is wrong. Something is amok. And so I think there's regulation. There's creating the same liability or connection between liability and the senior executives and their damage they levy that we've held every or that we've connected with every other senior management team and the damage they do. And more than anything, I think the most elegant, efficient thing to do in the short run is to break them up. But we have decided a small number of organizations have, we've given them permission to absolutely overrun D.C., and we have decided that this idolatry of innovators and this kind of mass, what I call worship of the dollar, has led to a situation where we are not applying the same standards to them we've applied to anybody else. They're not evil people. People will do the same thing. People will make incremental decisions. But our government is failing, and we as citizens are failing not to elect people to, hold, again, hold these guys to the same standards we've held everybody mm-hmm. else in the past. There are many aspects to the Facebook problem in particular, which confusing to people. And frankly, I've been confused and may still be confused 
about what I think here, because it's easy to see this argument that they're a platform, not a publisher, because absent some, you know, real breakthrough in AI that allows them to scour their servers every moment of the day and find politically divisive lies or, you know, child pornography or whatever it is that we, we want to hold them accountable for having published, it's easy to see that it's an unworkable task to actually be truly accountable for anything that could possibly be found on their servers as things scale. Now, it may just be that we're close enough to the end zone algorithmically that they, they should be forced to invest in, you know, the AI that they would have to invest in to you know, really accomplish the task. But it seems to me nowhere, nowhere written that it's guaranteed that you can always catch someone who's streaming their next suicidal act of terrorism live on your platform. So at least until it's proven otherwise, there's something seemingly reasonable about the claim that, listen, we've got half of humanity on this platform. We can't be responsible for everything we, you know, they publish in, in real time. What do you think about that as a starting point? I, th- I think there's r- real credibility and merit to what you're saying. And what, what I would argue is that if you were to say, take you know, 93% of intention to action happens on one company's platform, Google. You type in how to overthrow my government into the Google search box. And is the first search return you get a voter registration form or instructions on how to build a dirty bomb? And we've decided that one company gets to decide that 93% of the time globally. And they won't give us access or any insight into how they, how they construct or you know, decide which algorithms are presented to which people. I think that's dangerous. And I think it is a start if you force Google to say spin, spin YouTube in the first corporate strategy meeting of YouTube, they say, I know we all want growth. We all want our own economic security. What are we good at? We're good at search. Even though we're a video search company, let's start a text-based search company. And they're now competing with Google. And then Google says in their first corporate strategy post the spin offsite, let's start a video-based search company. And overnight, you have two search engines and you have two video search companies. And I think one of them, I think one of them says in an attempt to differentiate the other, we've made this massive investment in protecting kids from seeing pornography. I had one of those moments. I don't know if you, do you have kids, Sam? Yeah. How old? Six and 11, but both girls. Okay, so I have two boys. Yeah. So I don't know if you've had this moment yet, but we checked my nine-year-old's iPad history and he typed in Harry Potter nude, which is an unusual for a nine-year-old boy. And the stuff that came up was really disturbing. Mm. And I believe that if there were two large video-based search engines, one of them would probably make the requisite investment to attract Procter & Gamble advertisers. And I know Mark Pritchard, I know the people over there are very concerned about this. And they'll raise their hand and say, we're making a massive investment in ensuring that, that young people have no access to online porn. It's difficult, it's expensive. We can't be 100%, but we're gonna get rid of most of it. But right now, what are the incentives to do this? They're a monopoly. Advertisers don't have any choice. So what's the incentive? And if you wanna get on the island of misfit careers, Go into the group charged with figuring that out at Google or Facebook. That's the danger of monopolies. The incentive just isn't there. So I think competition would create a lot of incentive for them to say, if you invest with us, if you advertise with us, you know we're going to have election safety. We're not taking political ads. We're just not going to do it. And we're that platform. Yeah. So Twitter made that call, and I thought that was great. We're just not doing political ads. Why couldn't Facebook at least sees some modicum of perceived virtue here in deciding not to take political ads. They don't need to. They're a monopoly. They're going to make $800 million off of political ads this year. They've got, I think, a 
their valuation is, I think, about $750 billion. I think they, they kind of loosely 10 to 1. They're valued at a multiple of revenues of 10x. Mark Zuckerberg owns, I think, about 12% of the company. So about $80 billion, $800 million. So Mark Zuckerberg, eight, 10 times $800 million is $8 billion in enterprise value. Mark Zuckerberg is going to make a billion dollars from allowing political ads. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg has mm-hmm. ever made a decision. In my view, people will say, well, a lot of the regulation or a lot of the, the moderation investments they're making is not, you know, reduces profits. I think it's late. I think it's massive, but I think it's late. I think it's large. I don't want to say it's window dressing and they're making big investments, but I don't, you know, the, the real move here, quite frankly, what they might need to do is change their business model. Yeah. If you think about social media, social media is addictive. I'm addicted to Twitter because of the dopa hit, the same thing from nicotine or whatever it is you get. But the thing, nicotine doesn't give you cancer. What gives you cancer is tobacco. And the thing that gives people cancer from social media is the underlying advertising business model. Because as a primal, you know, as a fairly tribal species, the thing that gets us, and this is all, I'm parroting Tristan, the thing that gets us engaged is enragement. So when they talk about engagement, they're talking about enragement. So when I see material on anti-vax or Holocaust deniers, or someone says something mean to me in my Twitter feed, I engage, I weigh in, more clicks, more Chobani ads, more shareholder value. So at some point, Facebook you know, decided to say, all right, we're moving to a paid model. I think that's where Twitter should go. Twitter's actually not a great business right now. And the reason they gave right. up political ads is because they're just, they were just kind of meaningless for them. It's a low growth business that is probably overvalued right now. But for a small community of people, I don't know if you use Twitter, they love yeah. it. Yeah. And I wonder if, if they went to a paid model and they cleared out all the bots and all the toxicity and weren't totally focused on engagement and, and putting metrics in front of advertisers that created the illusion of more more eyeballs than are actually there. I wonder if they could move to that business model. But it's a huge problem. I think it's overstated by them because they want to they convince us we're talking about the realm of the impossible. No, we're talking about the realm of the profitable here. And that is, I mm. absolutely think they could solve the majority of these problems. It would just mean they would have to do what every other media front. I was on the board of the New York Times for two years. It was super expensive to fact check articles. It was super expensive to ensure that our advertisers we're legitimate and not defrauding people or, or causing self-harm among teens. And we never, you know, the company's worth a few billion dollars, not several hundred billion. There's a cost, there's an externality and a cost to this frictionless growth that we have afforded these companies. The question is, when do the externality costs become so great that even building a company worth $700 billion, which by the way, is an amazing thing. That's a great thing. It's a great thing. But at some point, when do the externalities outweigh even that $700 billion value accretion? And I think we're there. Hmm. Yeah, well, the thing that seems truly nefarious to me and, and something to which no one ever consciously consented, even though they, they clicked accept on terms of use a thousand times in, in the last decade, is this the fact that the, the real business for so many companies online and for so many apps is to trade in people's data and prop up this, you know, what you know, Zuboff has called this new age of surveillance capitalism. And yet the pendulum swing away from that, I mean, if we, if we suddenly become super concerned about these violations of privacy, that also takes us in a direction that has its obvious downsides. I mean, I, I think you and I will, will furiously agree on this point around the privacy absolutism we can see in, in Silicon Valley, where you have the people who you know, don't want to see an iPhone unlocked, no matter what could conceivably be on that iPhone. 
I just recorded a podcast on child pornography, which I haven't released yet, which is just fucking harrowing. And you hear some of the details of just what is going on in this world where where privacy is is fairly easy to ensure and fairly hard to to infringe upon. And any absolutism around having a completely inviolate iPhone goes totally out the window, at least for me. I mean, it's just the you know, there are stories of people having, you know, Zoom calls where you've got 16 people from around the world watching a child get raped. Everyone's secure in the knowledge that Zoom isn't going to look in. You know, there's no algorithm working in the background to catch this behavior. It's just insane. And yet you you do find that people are, um, and actually this, this actually connects directly with Facebook. And this is a moment where Facebook briefly looked good because was, so Facebook looked into their servers for child pornography and found a ton of it and found a lot of it in Facebook Messenger, whereas, you know, AWS doesn't even look at their servers so that they have no idea what's on there, right? So if you don't look, you're not going to find it. If you look and you're Facebook, you find a ton of it. But now Facebook, bowing to this notion of privacy at all costs, is planning to encrypt Facebook Messenger. And if they encrypt it, you know, then the argument will be, well, we can't look at what's happening there because it's encrypted. And yet they know now that, you know, in the last year, something like 16 million instances of child pornography were, were found on Facebook Messenger. What are your thoughts about the, the cult of privacy and, and how we should navigate the various trade-offs here? So this, this kind of weapon of mass distraction and this claim, this hollow claim that these companies give a good goddamn about your privacy is not anything grounded in their backgrounds. You're not going to find any First Amendment history or love of privacy in any of their backgrounds. What you're going to find is that encryption is the fastest path to abdicating all responsibility for the data that's on their platform and a way to avoid scrutiny such that they can't be broken up. The fetishization of the iPhone as the place that nobody can get into If your wife doesn't show up tonight and then she doesn't show up for another 48 hours, they get a search warrant and they get your computer and they come into your house and and they find out your search history. They can swab your hands. If I'm on my way home today, pulled over and suspected of having consumed alcohol, they can strap me to a gurney and take blood against my will. Mm. But, oh, don't leave the iPhone alone. I mean, the the fetishization of the iPhone is, in my mind, ridiculous. When we've decided we trust Tim Cook, who's an impressive, honorable man, more than laws that have kept us largely in balance between privacy and dangers to our public and national security. I mean, it's an emotional argument, but it's an apt one. Give me the privacy argument when your kid doesn't come home from school and they find her iPhone. Mm. I mean, it's just... The notion that we have decided that we don't want into it, that we don't want into a terrorist iPhone because we need a, a, a one safe place. We have managed this balance for the better part of 250 years, and our laws and our judges have done a pretty good job of that. I also think privacy is sort of overrated. I mean, I mean, it, it, I mean you hear consumers talk about privacy. It's just ridiculous. People love to have their privacy violated as long as it gets you to LaGuardia faster or there's a coupon at the end of it. Privacy violation is directly correlated with relevance. Now, the question is, are these companies putting in place the requisite investments to ensure that their platforms aren't weaponized or hacked such that people do really awful things with your personal data? And then there's, there needs to be some nuance here. Data around your sexuality, your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, that needs a different level of ring fencing. 
But I've always felt, I'm not on the side of the tech companies, but I've always felt privacy is a bit, I don't know, it's more, it's more spectacle than historic. And that tech companies are co-opting the notion of privacy such that they can abdicate responsibility by encrypting their backbone and making it impossible for authorities to go in there and such that they don't have to take any sort of accountability for the content on their platform. So it's a, it's a difficult argument, but if you look at what you guys have passed out there in California, like every other legislation or most of it, whether it's GDPR, which you, you guys have passed, it effectively net-net on the ground transfers power from the small and medium-sized players to the large players. Because the privacy legislation in California basically says around Facebook, you get in trouble for selling data. Facebook's business isn't selling data. It's selling access to Facebook who is able to molest your data and tell advertisers things they only dreamt of such that they can target you at the right time in the right moment. But they, in effect, don't violate the basic constructs of the legislation who I believe was initially trying to kind of regulate or throttle back Facebook. And when you think about Facebook, okay, people, most people like that privacy violation, but the fact that they didn't need to make the requisite investments to ensure they weren't weaponized by the foreign intelligence arm of, of the Russian government means, okay, they don't have any incentive to. What happens? They get fined $5 billion, $5 billion record fined. That was 11 weeks of cash flow or 11 days of revenue. If you had a parking meter in front of your house that cost $100 every 15 minutes and the ticket was 25 cents for violating that, you would continue to break the law. The FTC has turned into the least expensive insurance company in the world for big tech. If I showed up to your house and you were worth $600 billion and I said, in exchange for 1% of your wealth, I will indemnify you against anything you have done wrong to this date, which was part of the settlement, that's absolving them of any guilt for anything they had done up until that moment, you would say, where do I sign? The fine was almost perfect. It missed a zero. If it had been $50 billion, they could have afforded it. They have $53 billion on the balance sheet. I don't want to put these companies out of business. I love capitalist engines. Like I said, I own their stock. But the next day, instead of big tech executives high-fiving each other and said, wink, wink, keep breaking the law, they would have all sat down in a meeting the next day and they would have said, okay, shit just got real. Figure out a way to ensure we are radicalizing fewer young men on YouTube. Figure out if Instagram and unverified accounts, you know, is, is that 120% increase in teen, teenage girl suicide, is that linked to us? Are we responsible for that? Make sure any ad bought in a foreign currency is not from someone trying to influence our elections. These things, these things are all doable. They're expensive and they're hard. But, you know, these people are supposed to be the brightest people in the world. They can figure out what MSNBC, the New York Times, and the Orange County Register have figured out. So, look, we have, in my, my view, privacy requires a more nuanced conversation. But at the end of the day, these companies are getting to a point, and we've had some very dark moments in history, and they almost always involve one key step, and that is when private power overruns the government. And we are getting there with big tech. We are awfully close. So how do you feel about the ethics and optics of Twitter at the moment? I mean, this Twitter is the one you use avidly. And, and the truth is, it's the only one I use. And I recognize that it's not, it doesn't have the same liability for its targeting of ads because it seems its ad business has never really worked. So it's sort of like it's absolved ethically for its failure, whereas it, had it succeeded the way Facebook has, we might be telling the same story about it. But it's, you know, obviously toxic and divisive in its own way. What do you think about Twitter and how they're navigating the, the ethical dilemmas or challenges at the moment? Oh, well, they're, they're not. And 
this, this company and these issues deserve a full-time CEO. I like to think of myself as a student of corporate governance. The notion that the CEO of a company that has been weaponized or could potentially influence elections or has created is so controversial is part-time and has decided to spend several months next year in Africa. I think it's just, it just reflects that this board is not a board, that they're not fiduciaries. And also, if you look at their financial performance, it's not great. And the level of toxicity on Twitter, despite, you know, I love it, I'm addicted to it. It is pretty out there. And if you look at a lot of your Twitter streams, it's bots. So mm. verified accounts would be one easy step. You have to have an identity. Yeah. And also, I think Twitter is in a position, if you were to go to a paid model with Facebook, that is a really, all right, everyone's really got to hold hands and take a leap because you're talking about three quarters of a trillion value of three quarters of a trillion dollars up for grabs. They might, I mean, and it could just go away. So the, people don't want to lose that or they would have a tough time losing that. That's the economy of Manhattan, the GDP of Manhattan here. Twitter, you know, Twitter, I think it's about 20 billion. I think they're in a position and they're not growing and they haven't found in the, I think they are in a position to potentially think about moving to a paid model, mm. but the toxicity, the anger, the trolling, especially around the trolling, and I didn't know this. I think, I don't know if it was Tristan who did this work or Shoshana, but the trolling around what women endure yeah. on, on Twitter, is really ugly. So yeah, I think I think for a lot of the rage, I, I the venom I spit towards Facebook, some of it should probably be redirected towards Twitter, and it isn't because I just I like Twitter more and I enjoy it more. But Twitter is incredibly divisive, and I just feel sort of insulted that they've decided to attack these problems with a part-time CEO. I would just start there, maybe with a full-time CEO. There's also less downside. There is there is a bigger downside when you're talking about going after or risking three quarters of a trillion dollars. A lot of people, a lot of wealth tied up in Facebook. That's not to say they shouldn't break them up. It's not to say they're not subject to regulation. But Twitter, you know, at the end of the day, if Twitter's not gonna create a lot of economic value for a lot of people, and it's gonna create the kind of divisiveness that it's creating, absolutely, they should be subject to more, you know, liability. We need to get rid of the Content Decency Act, the CDA, it's 210 or 220. Ron Wyden in 1997, Democratic Center from Oregon passed this act that said that these nascent technology companies are no longer subject to the same scrutiny and legal liability as other media companies because they're nascent technology companies. Mm. So MSNBC can get in a world of trouble for promoting hate or slander or libel or fake identities or fake ads, but not these guys. That, that just needs to go away. If we really believe in deregulation, okay, let's, let's start there. Let's get rid of that. Yeah, I really badgered Dorsey to try to get him to acknowledged that Trump had violated his terms of service under any rational construal of those terms and that he should be kicked off the platform. But I don't think it's mere cynicism to suspect that the, the reasons not to kick Trump off were not just his newsworthiness. I think it's probably um, in terms of the, the economic viability of the platform. I think Trump has a, has a lot to do with it. If you look at the stock price, it looks like a smile. And the bottom of the trough was when Trump was elected. There are fewer people who have benefited more in terms of their personal wealth from the election of Donald Trump than Jack Dorsey. Mm. All right, Jack, if you're listening, you can um, absolve yourself if you just kick Trump off now and it, it's, all, it's all good. It's all better. <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. And I'm sincere about this question. Sure. So I read and I was forwarded some notes on you. I read that you're into the exploration of meditation. And yeah. And I struggle with anger and what I'd call mild depression. And the thing I find most disappointing about it is that I look at my blessings, I look at my mood, and one doesn't put to the other. And I'm trying to fix that as I get older. 
My sister summarized it perfectly two years ago. I talked to my sister every Sunday night and she said to me, she said, why are you so pissed off all the time? She's like, you have less reason to be pissed off than anybody I know. And you're pissed off all the time. So my question to you, and I'm sincere about this because I know nothing about meditation. Mm. What role can meditation play in my life trying to, trying to ensure that my blessings better foot or my mood better foots to my blessings? And what are some easy steps I can take to get started? It can play a very direct role. I think there's, you know, I'm not someone who puts a lot of weight on the, on what appears to be the low hanging fruit here. I mean, there's a lot of hype around mindfulness and the hype to a significant degree is warranted. There's just no question that it, it can be very, very helpful very quickly for people. But the deepest promise of, of the practice for me is not finding some linear correlation between, you know, minutes spent practicing and feeling better in any kind of linear way. And, and there's, because much of our suffering is, is not something we would want to be without, or at least, you know, re reframed, it connects us to what is really deep and, and beautiful and awe-inspiring about life. Just reflections on mortality. It's like it re reflections on mortality is not, it's not a straight path to feeling better because death scares the shit out of most people when they really think about it. And when you, when you meditate on the fact or contemplate the fact that you, if you live long enough, will lose everyone you love, otherwise the people you love will be losing you, mm -hmm. that can seem merely morbid. And some people will feel merely morbid when thinking those thoughts, but approach from another angle that is the doorway to real wisdom and an ability to prioritize your time and to align your values with what you you recognize by the light of that contemplation are are really your deepest values right and you know much of what we've talked about and you know people getting as you say just caught howling in the money storm even when they no longer have to is born of a failure to recognize what is truly precious in life which is the time you you have and how how you how you can spend it with the people you love most contemplating what makes life really precious and not miss not always deferring your your happiness to some future time when you when you think you will have really earned the right to relax so all of that said what mindfulness is there are different kinds of meditation but you know the kind i recommend is is mindfulness it's an ability to to one, where you recognize how distractible you are in every moment and what you're distracted by, by tendency, are, are thoughts about the past and the future. And you spend a little time noticing this, you notice that the character of those thoughts are mostly unhappy. You know, if you're dealing with anger a lot, you're, you're thinking thoughts that are making you angry. You know, you're noticing, you walk into a room and you notice the stuff you don't like and you notice people's behavior that annoys you and you and then you judge yourself in comparison with others and you're thinking about the past and you're kind of rehearsing your regrets about things that didn't go right and and then you're thinking about the future and you're th and you're you're thinking thoughts that make you anxious and you're spending and not just you personally but you know everyone is spending more or less all their time adrift on this conversational sea and they're not aware they're, they don't haven't developed the requisite concentration to be able to break that spell and so what training and mindfulness does is allows you to notice a thought as a thought and just let it go and that ability very quickly once you can do it becomes a kind of superpower because you can then 
get off the ride of any one of these negative emotions more or less as early as you want to. You're in a position to say, okay, is it really worth being angry about this? And when the answer is no, as it is, you know, 99% of the time, you can just then you let the thoughts that are making you angry, that are telling you, you know, every reason why you have to be angry at this person, you can just let those go because they just become the soundtrack of your mind that you can ignore. And the, the moment you, you ignore it, it, it really does dissipate. And the physiology of anger that has been built up by you being identified with thought in previous moments, if you can just become interested in that, I mean, just li- literally just feel it as, a, as an object of curiosity, it dissipates very, very quickly. I mean, it's literally impossible to stay angry for more than 30 seconds if you can pay attention closely to the, the way the emotion gets kindled by thought, the way it arises, the way that you, you, you feel this, this physiological change. And the moment you shine the light of, of, of really focused mindfulness on it, it dissipates immediately. And so it is with anxiety and, and, and other classically negative emotions. So it really it does become a very direct antidote to psychological suffering. But back to where I started here, the real profundity of the practice is to recognize some features of, of consciousness that, are, that offer a deeper remedy than that, which is you, you can actually just recognize that that in you, which is aware of your experience in each moment, isn't even harmed by negative emotions or improved by positive ones. I mean, you can actually recognize that consciousness, you know, that that which is aware of anger or sadness is the very same thing that's aware of joy or, you know, some, you know, classically positive source of affect. And it's not diminished by the former and improved by the latter. And so the more and more as you get into the practice of meditation, it's not approached as a kind of antidote to the arising of negative emotion, although it does become that fairly quickly, it becomes this way of just recognizing that the mind doesn't actually need to be improved. Actually recognizing what consciousness is like in each moment, it's a, it's a vision of a fundamentally mysterious and beautiful and unconfined nature of subjectivity. It really becomes a, a goalless practice. You're not trying to improve anything once you actually recognize the way consciousness is. But for, for a long time, there can be this, this more remedial orientation toward practice, which is, which is fine and, 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 and inevitable. And actually, it does bear fruit as advertised. But ultimately, it's, the goal is to actually get rid of any kind of seeking to change anything. And in getting rid of that, you achieve a kind of equanimity that is genuinely surprising and, and there in each moment, whatever's arising. And so, yeah, I, mean, I, I recommend it. It's the most important thing I've ever learned. There's no question. And this is why I'm occasionally flogging an app, which you've just absolved me of my final scruples <laughs> for advertising on Facebook. 100%. Yeah. You know, it's something, so first off, thanks for that. And occasionally when I go to sort of these, what I'll call retail or pop yoga classes, and the thing I've taken away is, all right, thought becomes intention, becomes action. So if you can arrest thoughts at the start line when they're not productive thoughts they never turn into intention and right. trying to develop that sort of mechanism that, and you know what has helped me and it's something we share when i was reading your biography my atheism has really helped and yeah. that is i've come to this recognition and this acceptance that at some point i'm going to look into my kids eyes and know our relationship is coming to an end and i find that motivating 
And I think a lot about end of life, but not in a macabre way. It's actually quite motivating for me. And I try to imagine in that moment being upset about things that happen to me, and that's fine. But what I don't want to do is be upset about the way I reacted to things and that I had outsized reactions. And that is, you know, I want to be sad about the bad things that happened to me, but what I don't want is a lot of regret over the outsized reactions I had to things that were inconsequential. And so that's saying life isn't about what happens to you, it's how you react to what happens to you. Yeah. But that finality and that recognition that, it's, that this is it, you know, there's a few things I'm 100% certain of. And I also recognize that my explanation for how we're all here, that there was nothing that it all exploded is no less outrageous than the notion that all oh, this was created in seven days by a guy with a scepter and flowing, flowing gray hair. But that, that atheism that I've accepted as I've gotten older has actually been very motivating and very comforting for me and has helped me to really think more about, okay, what is it that's going to help me look back as I do get towards the end and think, okay, mm. I, I check those boxes. Yeah, well, that's strangely counterintuitive to most religious people because the, the reaction you get from the religious on that point is, well, if, if this just all ends at death, what's the point? What's the point of being a good person? What's mm -hmm. the point of anything? Like, it seems to devalue life utterly for them if, if you tell them it's not eternal. But from the atheist side of things, it's flipped completely. It's like the, that is precisely what makes it precious. The only circumstance of of love and beauty and awe you can be sure of is this one. And given that, mm -hmm. why not live as an examined life as possible and as deep a life as possible and make the most of this circumstance? Why would you think that it has to last forever to be of value? I mean, that's just, uh, that's, uh, I mean, the truth is eternity, the promise of eternity truly diminishes this life, because I mean, it's precisely the logic by which it makes total sense to be a suicide bomber and to, or to celebrate your kids being a suicide bomber, because the life in this world is meaningless when held up against eternity, right? And if, if you thought you can get into paradise by behaving like a sociopath in the next 15 minutes, well, then it becomes completely rational to be that sociopath. But if this is the one circumstance you know you have to connect with reality, why not make the most of it now? And yeah, I mean, so it just seems like the, the ethical logic of valuing life more and more, the less certain you are that you're going to get an infinite amount of it after you die. I mean, that, that seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah. And we were talking about different, you know, racism and cancel culture. I find that as an atheist, we're canceled. I mean, I don't think there's one oh, yeah. admitted atheist in the Senate. I don't think there's one person. I'm I'm sure there's got to be in Congress with 455 of them. There was one, uh, he just died, Pete Stark, I think I have that oh, right. Oh, Pete, yeah. he was from California, I think. But I think he was the only person in Congress who was out as an atheist. And what it gets miscast, and that is atheism is sort of based, or my, my understanding of atheism is that it's based on this notion that there has to be a lot of respect for people who are believers, such that they respect our, you know, our non-belief. And I find that I'm self-conscious when I talk about my atheism. I, people look at me like, oh, that's so sad. I'm like, no, it's yeah. not sad. I'm okay. I'm down with it. It's, I'm going to be fine. Well, also, it, there's just misunderstandings around the, the branding. I mean, it has, has worse PR than almost anything else. But it, it doesn't exclude anything that people have traditionally done to connect deeply with the world or their own deepest possibility of positive 
emotional experience. I mean, so like all the beauty and awe and self-inquiry and even mysticism. You know, you can drop acid and walk into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and feel just like Jesus if you want to. The only difference between atheism and dogmatic religion is in, in the kinds of things you say afterwards, right? Like, like just what do you think your experience actually gives you license to say about the nature of the cosmos? And if you're going to be rigorous intellectually in extrapolating from your personal experience, you'll be quite reserved in doing that, and your, your certainties will scale with the evidence and arguments you, you can put forward in defense of those, those certainties, and which is to say you'll have the attitude of a scientist who's now thinking about the ways in which first-person experience can inform one's worldview you know, within the bounds of reason. But that it certainly doesn't close the door to quote-unquote spiritual experience. It just closes the door to being sure that some book was authored by the creator of the universe or that your quote spiritual experience is a data point in favor of one sectarian ideology that a fraction of humanity inherited merely based on the way in which they were linguistically and geographically separated from the rest of humanity. But if we're going to draw the obvious conclusion that whatever is true of our circumstance fundamentally has to be understood and understandable in 21st century terms, that's enough to give you atheism in the normal sense. I mean, atheism really is only a denial that any of our ancient books were written by the creator of the universe. The moment you oppose the, the claims about the books, well, then you're functionally an atheist, certainly with respect to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but you haven't closed the door to anything else. I mean, in terms of the experiential side of, you know, what happens to a human mind when you go into a cave for 10 years and do nothing but meditate or take psychedelics or, or you know, perturb the nervous system in any other way. There's a lot to be said about what happens. You just don't have to pretend to know anything on insufficient evidence in order to say it. Yeah, I, I'm going to guess you're a fan of Ricky Gervais. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, I mean, he just summarizes it, right? If we started over in a thousand years, we'd probably end up with the same physics and chemistry books, but who knows if we'd have the Bible yeah. and the Quran. And, well, we just know yeah. we wouldn't. I mean, there's just no way we would, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, and, if, and, and, I just, and I just tell people that, I, you know, out of the 350 gods that have over a million people following them, I just believe in one less than you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely something that warrants, I don't know, we should be more loud and proud about it. Yeah, that is the irony that it's, it is the one political variable that just guarantees that you cannot run for president or much else. We're out, Sam. Yeah, yeah. We're out. Right. <laughs> it's podcasting for us. All right, Scott, I've got uh, a few rapid fire bonus questions. You got, okay. you got seven more minutes in you or something like I that? I do. Okay. Let's do it. Cool. If you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, and you can define that however you want, what would it be? So if you think about my field is academia, you don't get a lot of questions. The people who approach me about academia are usually what I call FIPS, formerly impressive people. They've stepped down as CEO of some company and they think that they should bestow their genius on the rest of the world and that they're going to show up and just talk about how awesome they are. And that's a class. I know that sounds cynical. I think academia is a great profession. I, my one piece, my kind of only piece of advice it is every time I think I have a absolute in terms of advice, it gets debunked. The, only, the thing I tell young people that has been a huge source of comfort for me professionally and personally is just the notion that nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. Mm. And that 
when things are going well for you and you're killing it, bring in your horns, have some humility, be careful around risk. And when things go really poorly for you, that's when you need to figure out, all right, mourn for a little bit of time, but then step up and swing harder that, that nothing's just ever as good or as bad as it seems, whether it was my mom being diagnosed with cancer and telling her she had six months to live. No, that wasn't right. And then when she was five years out and they said, you're free and clear, that wasn't right either. When I lost you know, almost everything in 2000 and thought I was an idiot because I'd started dot-coms. No, I wasn't an idiot, nor was I the genius everyone said I was in 1999. Nothing's ever as good or as bad as it seems. And it's mm. something I constantly repeat to myself when I'm, you know, and I, quite frankly, I fuck up and I'm sitting in bed thinking about what an idiot I am or how bad this is. No, it's not as bad as you think it is. And then to have some humility when you think you're the master of the universe. No, you're not. You're not all that. Mm. Long answer. Sorry no, no, that. that's that wasn't that rapid no, fire. No, however, you, however long you want. Uh, that's great. What if anything do you wish you'd done differently in your twenties, thirties, or forties? You can pick the relevant decade. I invested more in relationships and been less selfish. In business school, we talk a lot about the power of compound interest with respect to investing. Put ten bucks away a day, get rich slowly. That's the only guaranteed way to get rich is to get rich slowly. But the same is true of relationships. I think just small investments, text messages, having the confidence to tell people that you love them, to tell people that you're impressed by them. Mm to be affectionate with people, to take time out of, you know, I'm just so in my head all the time. I kind of woke up when I moved to New York when I was 40 and I just found I didn't have that many deep, meaningful relationships in my life that I wanted to press reset. I wanted to be alone. I wanted to leave my apartment for, to make money, to have food, to have sex. And that was about it. And I liked being on an island. And then I just like some sort of instinct kicked in and said, you're going to die early. And a lot of the studies show that men who don't have very many relationships do die, you know, 10 to 15 years earlier mm. and started investing in relationships and have found that it's, it is the kind of the source of my happiness. So I wish I had been less selfish and had made, been more disciplined about investing in relationships mm. in my twenties and thirties. 10 years from now, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life? I think that I will, I spend a lot of time with my kids, but I think as I get older, you know, I, I travel a lot. I don't know if you travel a lot for business, but I come home sometimes and I, because work's taken me away and I've been away from my kids for two weeks and I can see that they've grown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I hate that. You know, that, that, that nine-year-old boy yeah. I had two weeks ago, he's gone. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's tragic. So I, I think I'll look back and as much time as I, I can, and I do, I think I do a pretty good job spending time with the kids, I'll wish I'd spend more time with them. It's just, it's finite. And I just can't get over how fast it's going. Yeah. Something I've done too much of, I don't know, I probably drink too much. I, mm. I like it. Mm. I'm good at it. I'm a better version of me right. after a few drinks, but I probably drink too much. I should probably modulate it. But in terms of, yeah, I don't know, indulgent, selfish behavior, too much of that. What is something that you're right about that is very controversial? Uh, the tyranny of big tech. That's controversial? Well, it was when I was writing about it. <laughs> right. I mean, when I wrote right. my book, The Four, I wrote it about four years ago, and I said that until we put one of these guys in jail, we're all at risk. Mm. And the only argument back then was who was going to run for president or who was more awesome. I, I, right. I do think that, you know, people say, well, you're piling on. I'm like, listen, boss, I was at the bottom of the scrum. I yeah. think that... I think these, you know, I think Sheryl Sandberg is one of the worst things that happened to women in the last 30 years. I think Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person on the planet. Hmm. So these things, 
It's just interesting. It's, uh, you say, it's just so funny you say that. When I said these things a few years ago, I remember showing the manuscript to my publisher and she's like, you sure you want to say this? Mm. So Yeah, th there really has been a sea change in the last couple oh. years. It's amazing, yeah. People have no idea. Yeah. People used to literally look at me like I was just fucking crazy. These were our idols. This was Elvis yeah. Presley and Bono and, you know, I don't know, Rihanna. Your point about Sheryl Sandberg really does sharpen it up because her lean-in moment was... She was writing her own hagiography, and her husband's death only made her, in some sense, more impossible to criticize. But so you're you're putting it in terms of of her being the worst thing that's happened to women in fifty years. You know that's that puts you out there on the edge again in terms of criticism of big tech. What negative experience, one you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? My mom dying in her cancer. Mm. My mom raised me on her own. It was just me and her. It was kind of me and her against the world. You know, kind of light of my life kind of thing. I'm still not over her death. And she died struggling with cancer. And it was difficult. I think this happens to everybody. At some point, everybody loses someone. Everybody has someone they love that gets sick and dies. And I think it changes you forever. And yeah. it gave me a sense of the finite nature of life. It gave me a sense, you know, when the one person who you know loves you unconditionally is gone, it creates a certain level of insecurity and fear in your life. And, you know, and then I decided when she died, I was going to have kids. It's, and mm. then I said about, okay, trying to figure out a way to replace that unconditional love. So that was the defining moment, if you will, in my life was my mom's illness. What most worries you about our collective future? The fact that we're, the capitalism is, is segregating us, that we no longer go to movies together, we no longer are in the same schools together. And I went to high school, you live in Los Angeles, at University High School, and it was like a third of us were white, a third of us were black, a third of us were Latino, up and down the entire income spectrum. I went to this Lily White Elementary School, Fairburn, then I went to Emerson, and we got there, and it's not, it's not a Hallmark Channel movie. We hated each other. Mm. We had black against white softball games. Can you believe that? Mm. Wow. And the faculty allowed it. We hated each other. And the black kids were more violent. You know, and I, I could get canceled for say, saying that. Uh, they had been on a bus for an hour and a half each way. They were pissed off. We didn't understand the Latinos. They weren't getting the kind of education they needed. We hated each other. And then by the time I got to high school, university high school, something wonderful happened. We just started getting along. Hmm. And my two best friends, one was a Mormon kid who came from a higher income household than me, and he w went to Stanford. And seeing Mormons and the family night and an absence from alcohol and him going to Stanford gave me something to reach for that I never thought of. I, I emulated. I thought cool teenage boys were just into partying and didn't care about college, and I could never go to Stanford. And seeing him go to Stanford made me believe I could go to Stanford. And then my other close friend was a kid named Ronnie Drake, who was a black kid who played middle linebacker on a high school team, and he hurt his neck in his game. And I remember him sobbing after the game, like, dude, you're going to be fine. He's like, if I don't play next week when the scouts come, I'm not going to college. And it just, it created a sense of empathy. For, for, and I worry that slowly but surely we're taking kids in every generation, all of us, and we're casting everybody and segregating us all into different pods and different, different lines to get on the plane and different 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 experiences at amusement parks and different theaters now and go to IPIC and it's 50 bucks and all the wealthy people go to IPIC, the middle class go to movies and then the rest of us are home watching. I it just, I feel like we're losing a comity of man that the shared collective American experience, mm. whether it was service in the military 
or high schools that brought kids together from different income levels. I, I worry that we're losing a sense of empathy and a sense of self around the American experience. Okay, final question, the Jurassic Park question. If we're in a position to recreate the T-Rex, should we do it? Oh, 100%. <laughs> that would be that would be so gangster. Yes. Come on. Yeah, I'm with that you. That would be. I, I would go to Jurassic Park, even knowing the dangers. Even knowing the dangers, I'd go. Wouldn't you yeah, go? No doubt. Yeah. Uh, why not? Dude, we're in. Yeah. That might happen. All right. That's what Jack Dorsey should well, do. Let... 140 characters? Fuck that. Get the T-Rex back, boss. Well, if you hear about any seed round for Jurassic Park, let me know. You're in. Okay. Deal. Well, listen, Scott, it's really been great to finally connect with you. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, likewise. And congratulations on your success, Sam. I think you're having a lot of positive impact on people and creating economic security for you and your family. You are the American dream. Well done. Nice. Well, back at you. Thanks, boss.